You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Greetings, everyone. Leading up to each of these podcast recordings, I give a fair bit of thought to how I want to introduce a given topic. And the same is true for this one, but let me just start with this. I am absolutely thrilled about today's topic and the guests that we have joining us. Now, to be fair, I can and will say the same thing about many of the topics that we discuss, other topics that we discuss and guests that we have on. But I think you're going to find this episode and guests particularly educational, entertaining, and memorable. Today's episode and the one or two that will follow goes fairly deep into the reproductive ecology of waterfowl and focuses on a topic that I suspect many of our listeners have heard about. It's something called nest parasitism, avian nest parasitism to be exact, whereby multiple females will lay their eggs in the same nest. Now, we're not going to just talk about this phenomenon. We're going to ask questions such as why does it occur and under what circumstances is it most likely to occur? You know, the questions that demand explanation and that often require really smart people to do the thinking and experimentation to help us deliver those answers <laughs> And this discussion is going to eventually <laughs> This is your guest chuckling in the background. <laughs> Already entertaining. I promised you, and, and he's going to deliver. <laughs> and this discussion is going to eventually feature one of our most abundant and colorful species of waterfowl, the wood duck, and provide insights to a very innovative and technology-laden study that's being used to help answer these intriguing questions. What's more, we have exactly the right person that you've already heard joining us to explore these most fascinating topics. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome in the very distinguished professor and my friend, Dr. John Eady. John, welcome into the show. Thanks very much, Mike. It's great to be here. So, John, I also do need to introduce you and your title and where you are. You are a professor and you are the Dennis G. Raveling Chair of Waterfowl Ecology with the Department of Wildlife, Fish, and Conservation Biology, the University of California, Davis. That's a mouthful, but you deserve every bit of it. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Yeah, that that pretty much uh, that pretty much sums me up. Yep, I'm here at uh, at UC Davis and have been here for about 25 years, uh, and uh, very fortunate to to uh, be the holder of the Dennis Raveling Professorship. And for any folks who know anything about waterfowl, you know that Dennis Raveling was a giant in this field. So. Very honored to uh, to have an endowed chair in his name. That's right, and I'm glad you mentioned his legacy. And that's one of the other things that we've touched on, stumbled upon occasionally in our previous episodes, is just the lineages that occur within our field, within the, the waterfowl academic uh, and management profession. We actually had uh, uh, Dr. Phil Lavretsky on a previous episode. Uh, I'm not exactly sure if it will have aired by the time we do this one, but Phil spent some time there uh, studying under you. Is that right? Uh, yeah, he was. Uh, he worked in in our lab and uh, and was a uh, was an undergrad and took my waterfowl class and uh, 
I guess it didn't dissuade him sufficiently that he actually stayed in the field. So, yeah, it's amazing this field, as you know, you know, Mike. I mean, your your heritage as well. You know, there's a there's a small, fairly small number of folks, and unfortunately, getting smaller um, schools that that offer training in waterfowl ecology and management, and uh, that lineage goes long and deep. John, you said you've been there at UC Davis for what, twenty five years? Over twenty five? Just twenty five now, coming up on the quarter century. Yeah. Give our give our listeners a bit of uh, a bit of background on your career, where you came from, and kind of how you got into into doing what what it is you do. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll probably say out and about at some point in this conversation, so that that obviously uh, outs me. Uh, so I'm uh, Canadian. <laughs> uh, grew up in uh, British Columbia. Grew up on a dairy farm. Uh, you know, doing the usual kid stuff on a farm, hunting and fishing, and and. Uh, and then uh, went back uh, back east uh, for my schooling. Actually worked under Dave Ankney, who was a very famous waterfowl ecologist back at the University of Western Ontario. Another one of the names that we've mentioned uh, quite a few times. Absolutely. And then his graduate Tom, uh, graduate student Tom Nuds, also another well known name in our community, um, was a PhD student with Dave. And so he he kind of took me under his wing and uh, did my undergraduate there. Did a master's degree at Queen's University. Did a PhD at UBC, where I started into this crazy phenomenon we're going to talk about today as part of my PhD project, working on barrels and common goldeneye. And uh, before I'd even finished my PhD, I got hired at the University of Toronto. Uh, so I was Mr. Professor for the first three months while I still tried to finish up my uh, my PhD thesis. And, uh, and just got tenure there. And this position was advertised here at UC Davis, which is just a fantastic school. I know about Dennis Ravling's uh, um, reputation, obviously, all the folks, Jim Settinger, Bob McClanders, all the people that have come through here, Mickey Heitmeyer. And uh, so I, I put in an application, even though I'd just gotten tenure. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess all the other candidates uh, mysteriously withdrew or uh, and somehow they offered me the position. And uh, and so here I am. So. Uh, and I had to give up tenure. It was, a, it was an assistant professor of position. So um, my lesson in life is you can fool a majority of the committee twice. And I, yeah, that's that. It worked out for me. And so I've been here for, for 25 years uh, trying to fill Dennis's uh, not shoes waiters. Uh, he was not only big uh, intellectually, he was also big physically. And uh, it's just been, it's just been amazing. Well, I can at least speak. For, I never met uh, Dennis so I can't speak for his physical stature or anything of that nature, but I can certainly speak to your intellectual abilities and the contributions that you have made. And you are a, a true scholar in this field. We'll, it, we'll interact with a lot of uh, a lot of the professors, academics, and and managers, waterfowl managers throughout North America over the course of this podcast. And 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 I think people are going to see that individuals have different areas of specialty. They have different skills and different expertise. And and yours is very unique, John. You mentioned some of the people that, that shared this, this particular set of skills and level of intellect, Tom Nudd's being a, one of the best examples that, that comes to mind. It's this, this, this unique ability to think theoretically, uh, evolutionarily, to really ask these deep, questions of why a certain phenomenon occurs, but then you're also able to to jump over into this realm of applied management, apply, applying the, the research, the answers from the research that you conduct 
to help us better conserve wetlands for waterfowl, manage waterfowl populations. So it's just this really unique skill set and level of intellect that you had that I've always admired. And I'm, I hope people, I know people will hear that in our discussion, and I hope people appreciate the time that you're giving to this discussion. I think it's really a, a real treat for the people in this, in North America, or for the world for that matter, uh, that take the time to listen to this podcast, to hear your voice, hear your expertise and the contributions that you've made to this. So just thank you. And I, I wanted people to realize that, that, that we, uh, we have a true distinguished guest with us, like many others that are going to join. And it's a treat for me to be able to help bring these voices to, to the people. Thanks, Mike. Mike that's, uh, that's far too generous, but thanks a lot. You know, I just, just one, one quick comment on that. And it's not, it's not me. I mean, it's Tom. It's people like Bob Clark. I mean, Ankeny thought the same way. Raveling thought the same way. Um, it's just, you know, I think too often we get, we get siloed and we get sort of the, you know, the, the population ecologists or the theoretical ecologists on one side of the fence. And then, and then the folks that are interested in actually doing something, managing and, and implementing those ideas. And too often we don't cross the fence. And so from those folks, I think I was inspired to think about how you could link and, and use, you know, fundamental ecology, whether it's theory or just basic principles but also it's got to have an endpoint, you know, at the end of the day and you got to be able to apply it. So that's something that um, I appreciate you saying that. And that's something that's really important to our program. Okay. So John, with that background, let's move into the topic at hand and, and we're going to separate this discussion into at least two parts. We're, we're first going to talk about avian nest parasitism in general, what, what it is, why it exists. And then we're going to move into a discussion of nest parasitism in, in waterfowl. And again, as I mentioned previously, wood ducks are going to be the focus of that. We've also talked on previous episodes about how none of the work that we do in this field is done really in isolation of, of certain partners, whether that be it, partners in academia or partners in the field when we're delivering the habitat for waterfowl and, and other critters. Uh, and, and I'm sure that's the same with the particular research that you've done over the years. So I just wanted you to be, feel free at any time to acknowledge any of your partners or contributed or contributors to this important work. So with that, let's, let's jump right into avian nest parasitism. And I'm going to open the door for you. You're the expert on this. The most basic question, what is avian nest parasitism? <laughs> It's a sneaky, you know, malicious reproductive strategy that uh, a number of birds pursue. It's act, I mean, it goes back to Aristotle talked about it. Everybody knows, you know, the cuckoo clock, cuckoos, uh, cowbirds, uh, folks in North America would certainly be familiar with brown-headed cowbirds. So so these are birds, uh, uh, and they, they fall into two groups, uh, obligate brood parasites or nest parasites and, and facultative. Um, the obligate brood parasites are the ones that never have a nest of their own. It's, it's just kind of wacky. So So cuckoos. Various uh, parasitic finches uh, in, in Europe and Africa, and then our own brown-headed uh, brown-headed cowbird will lay their eggs in the nest of other species and never never care for the kids. So that host species will incubate the eggs. If it's a passerine bird, they'll feed the kids until they fledge, and uh, and away they go. So it really is a very sneaky uh, way of, uh, of of basically forcing childcare on on a completely mm -hmm. different species. So that, that's one group of birds. There's maybe about 100 species of those. And those they've been studied pretty heavily. I mean, that goes way back. You know, uh, Europeans have known of European cuckoos for, for centuries. Aristotle wrote about them. Uh, and, and they've actually received a fair bit of attention because it's an interesting example of, of basically a parasitic relationship uh, in, a, in a vertebrate. Um, the hosts are paying big costs. The parasites are getting big benefits. Um, yet all sorts of arms races that could develop between the two. So that's that's been fairly well studied, uh, although it's not, you know, it occurs in about 100 or so species of the almost 10,000 species of birds. So not super common, but, 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 but quite, uh, quite bizarre. 
Then there's another group, which we call facultative nest parasites or brood parasites. And they're, for me, they're a bit more interesting because those are ones that, that only sometimes lay their eggs in the nest of other, and these are birds. It also occurs in fishes and insects, uh, other taxa, but most prominent in birds. So they lay their eggs in the nest of other birds of the same species. So that's intraspecific or conspecific. Uh, and, but they also will lay eggs in their own nest and incubate them. So they kind of have a dual uh, sort of approach to reproduction. So they've got this cheater mode, but they also have sort of the, what we would think of as kind of the standard parental mode. It turns out that, that um, we call it facultative. We actually, the sort of the acronym for it is CBP, and I may slip into that. It's conspecific yeah. brood parasitism. Uh, so I may, I may say that throughout. But uh, it turns out that it's actually more common than the, the, uh, the cuckoo style, the, the interspecific obligate brood parasitism. So there's about 250 species that, that of birds that do this facultative parasitism sometimes, and some females will lay some of their eggs in the nest of other birds and just kind of freeload a bit. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. It's intriguing because you wonder how these sort of uh, sneaky reproductive strategies can evolve, what maintains them in the population. And from a, from a man, you know, I always try to sort of bring this back to a management perspective. What does that mean in terms of uh, productivity for the population? What does that mean in terms of population dynamics? Um, what is it that maintains these kind of behaviors in different populations over time? So, so it's an interesting problem. It hasn't really been looked at in a lot of depth, and that's uh, something that we've been we've been sort of interested in for a number of years. John, I have you on the phone here or, or on this on this call, and you're you're as much a theoretical ecologist as you are, you know, the one who studies applied questions. And so I'm going to take advantage of this. You mentioned that <laughs> for my own benefit. You mentioned that it's more common in birds. Why? Why do we why do we think that is? Is it now, is it more common just by the number of species and that just reflects greater number of birds uh, that we have? Or is it proportionally more common in birds? And why would that be? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Mike. Um, I think there's two factors. One, I mean, the, the, the facultative parasitism within species is just much harder to detect. I mean, when you think about it for birds, the eggs look the same. It's the same species. So it really hasn't been until, you know, sort of the whole DNA movement, you know, back to the whole old J fingerprinting, you know, kind of stuff that. We can now actually detect these sort of uh, covert, uh, sneaky parentage patterns, um, and I think I think it may be just the birds have been better studied to some extent. Um, there's been a lot of interest in bird ecology, so researchers have spent more time on it. It turns out to be common in a number of groups of insects as well, and it also turns out to actually even occur in fish, like mouth brooding cichlids. There's species that will come uh, come and lay eggs. The host will actually absorb the young into their mouth and they actually brood the young in their mouth. It's just the craziest way. So so it does occur in other groups. Uh, it's an interesting question why it's not more common in those groups. I think the circumstances that give rise to it, the, the uh, opportunity to increase fecundity or reduce uh, mortality by, by getting rid of some of this parental care might be, those conditions might be a bit more prevalent in, in um, parental care type species like birds. Uh, it's not in mammals, of course, because you can't you can't lay your egg in another female's uterus, <laughs> right? <laughs> to, to be to be blunt, <laughs> right? Well stated. Um, so it's you've had this discussion, I, I suspect, with a number of people. Is this has been a, an area of focus for you all all of your academic career? Have you when you tell people of this phenomenon, do you often find them kind of surprised to know that it even occurs? Like how 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 much common knowledge is there even of this of this happening? 
I don't, I don't think there's a lot. I think people are familiar with cuckoos and cowbirds, and so you know they they may know about that. They go, oh yeah, I've heard about those sneaky species. Boy, what what little rats they are. Um, but yeah. but the fact that it is it is uh, almost three times more common occurring within species, I think is. Uh, is is you know kind of unusual i mean even in my own career mike i mean the reason i got into this was years ago working with with the great harry lumsden back in the ontario ministry of natural resources great waterfowl biologist i was doing my master's on common golden and i up in northern ontario and um you know these are these sort of northern lakes and zooming around with boats with these you know 20-foot extension ladders dangling out of the front of <laughs> you know an outboard yeah. canoe yeah. and uh and and so I was working with a couple of other guys who were pretty seasoned uh, wildlifers, and I was the rookie, you know, I was the, the master student up there. And 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 so they said, John, go and check that nest. And I went up, and it's common gold. And I, they normally lay a clutch of about eight to ten eggs, and there's like twenty eggs in the in the box. I remember this distinctly. And and I thought they were just screwing with me, you know. And they went, I said, yeah. there's twenty eggs. And they went, and they went, no, no way, uh, boy, you're lousy. You're going to get fires. No, no, there's there's twenty eggs in this nest. You don't know what you're doing, kid. Oh, you're, 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 and I thought for sure they were just screwing with me. They, you know, they did tricks like that all the time. Pull the plug out yeah. of the back of the boat, and you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, and then we started finding more and more. And so that was the first thing as a graduate student. Know, what's going on? And I started asking people about it. And, and and even these guys who, you know, they said, yeah, we sometimes see that. We don't know what's going on. I think it's just it's just a big mistake. You know, females are, are drunk coming home at night and laying eggs in the wrong nest, <laughs> yeah. you know, something like that. And, and, and for a long time, people thought this was just a, kind of an aberrant behavior. Turns out the waterfowl folks were way ahead of the scheme. I mean, they were they were writing papers back in the 50s, Jones and Leopold, people like that. Um, and, and one of the, one of the species that we'll talk about, the wood duck was, was well known. So they were, they were actually catching on to this. Um, but, but people had not really studied in any detail or thought about uh, why it might exist, you know, so the ecology of it until really till the, the mid eighties. So, um, hard to study, wasn't as much interest and, uh, people weren't sure what the consequences of the behavior would be from either a management or a, or a, you know, theory side of things. You've alluded to a couple of species in waterfowl for which this occurs, but what are some of the other species uh, in waterfowl that that where this exists as a strategy, at least that we know of to this point? Oh yeah, no, there's actually a fair number. It, it seems to be mo you know particularly common in cavity nesting uh, species of waterfowl. So wood ducks, the two golden eyes, buffleheads, mergansers, hood mergansers. Um, you know, those are some of the most notorious uh, breed parasites. But then it also the other classic is is the red-headed duck redhead uh and canvas backs um redheads are are, are well known and those are of course of course are, are poachers so they're emergent fringe uh nesters they're not cavity nesters uh it occurs you know it's, it's actually i think it's it's uh it's been found in over 50 species of waterfowl at least once in a while so they really seem to have a proclivity for it i think it's 56 species it's been recorded in of the 144 or so so um there seems to be something with waterfowl. We've got some ideas on that. So why it's more common. One, one of the more interesting ones, we've also studied this, is the black-headed duck in Argentina. It's like a, a cuckoo or a brown-headed duck. It never has a nest of its own. So it lays its eggs in the nest of coots, by and large, or, or, uh, or uh, brown-headed gulls, and uh, and never cares for its kids. So it does the cuckoo thing. It's So whole whole range of possibilities. And so the black-headed duck is not a cavity nester, then, right? No, it's not. No, it's it's a it's a. Well, I think they um, most of the modern phylogenetics put them close to like ruddy ducks, the stiff tails, oxyurids. But even that isn't completely clear. But yeah. So that species, as well as the canvasbacks and redheads, offer a bit of a contrast to the the other species for which this is most common, cavity nesting ducks. What's what's going on there? 
So this is going to open in a, a, a huge door for you to walk right through, John, and talk for <laughs> probably an hour. Yeah, yeah. You start to yeah. explain the get a comfortable spot, pour pour another pour another drink there, Mike, and uh, get lean back in your armchair. I'll, I'll wake you up when I'm done. Uh, no, I'll try. I'll try to make this. I'll try to make this. Let, let me let me sort of walk you through the a little bit of the history of the idea. So the early ideas were it really was just an abnormal behavior. You know, the females were were either hormonally misprimed or um, uh, you know, were somehow making mistakes. And that, you know, that was kind of not a very satisfactory explanation. And then, and then particularly for cavity nesters, like wood ducks, you know, it was, it was well known in wood ducks, Buffalo has Tony Erskine did some work. Then the thought was, well, maybe it's due to nest limitation. You know, I can't find a nest. I've got some eggs to lay, uh, better to lay some in somebody else's box and maybe or nest cavity, uh, maybe, maybe even win that cavity. But if not, the worst case scenario is, is, uh, you know, have some eggs in that nest. And so it was kind of a best of a bad job or a salvage kind of approach. So that, that was one idea. And that still holds a fair bit of water. Uh, another thought was a female that might have lost her nest to a predator. So I'm partway through my clutch. Predator comes along. I still got eggs, you know, in the uh, uh, developing. And so rather than just absorbing those, uh, maybe I should lay those in somebody else's nest. And, and if nests are relatively easy to find, so that could be true. There's a third factor, cavity nest or discrete. Um, the emergent fringe nesters, the, uh, like canvasbacks and redheads, those nests are probably easier to find, much harder to find an upland nest, like a pintail or, you know, sort of mallards scattered around. So it tends to be less common unless it's on islands where you get concentrations of, say, mallards and gadwalls on islands. Uh, you'll, you'll tend to find more, uh, more parasitism. So, so that, that was that idea. Is that, but that still, I think, is only half the story. So the other half of the story is, well, what does a female get out of it? And why is this behavior so common in waterfowl compared to other groups of birds? Um, a couple of ideas there, if I can go on on that. I mean, one may be that uh, the waterfowl are, uh, you know, you can find the host nest. I mean, the species that you see it in, cavity nesters, like I just talked about, emergent fringe nesters. I mean, it's, it's not that hard. We find them, right? When we're out nest searching, it's pretty easy for us to find those nests. So, so certainly they're good at it. Their lives depend on it, or at least their reproduction depends on it. So, so host availability could be one factor. Um, another, another factor that comes into play, we think, is that waterfowl, is, as most folks listening to this will know, have uh, you know, kids that are, are precocial. So they hatch out, their eyes are open, they're downy, they feed themselves within 48 hours of hatching. They can swim, move about on their own. So, so what that means is that the cost to a host female, the recipient of this largesse of the parasite, may actually not really be that costly. Uh, incubation for sure. If the clutch sizes get large, that could have an impact on her own success. But by and large, this is a pretty, pretty uh, friendly parasite, if you will. It's just really not going to cost that female too much. And in fact, we even had some wacky ideas back in the day that, that maybe it benefits her. Maybe by having an enlarged brood. So instead of a brood of 10, I've got a brood of 20 now. It reduces the probability that one of her own genetic offspring gets snafued by predators. So it just reduces the odds. It's the dilution effect, sort of a one in ten versus one in twenty. So maybe it's actually a benefit. I mean, maybe it's not parasitism at all. Maybe it's kind of a you know mutual benefit. In any case, the, I think the thing there is the, is the cost of the hosts are probably much reduced, and therefore there's there's not as much resistance. But the, but still, the question that has to be asked is, well, why would you ever risk your own egg on another female in the first place? And and it really comes down to two answers. One is you may not have any alternative. So again, the idea you might have lost your nest or the nest sites might be limited. I think that's a possibility. 
The other possibility is you might do better off by laying that egg in somebody else's nest than laying it in your own. It may be that that nest is a higher quality nest, or that female is an older, more experienced female. She's a higher quality female. Or it may be that by laying, say, you know, a clutch in somebody else's nest and then going, replenishing my nutrient reserves and laying a uh, clutch in my own nest, I can basically double brood, but I only have to care for one clutch. So that's this idea of being able to enhance a female's reproductive effort overall uh, by being a brood parasite. So two sides of the coin. One is that ah, you're making the best of a bad situation. The other is I'm actually getting some, some enhancement of my reproductive success by laying at least some eggs parasitically, potentially also uh, laying some of my own nest. So that's kind of the, the genesis of the idea. So it's gone from mistake and hormonal miscues to now maybe quite a sophisticated strategy that there are different reasons for different females. You can wake, you can wake up now, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> you and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. We know it's more common in cavity nesting waterfowl and, and it's also common in, in redheads uh, and canvasbacks. Now, are canvasbacks, canvasbacks don't parasitize other nests as readily as redheads do. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And so that's an interesting contrast in itself, right? Because they're nesting in the same type nest. And so do we have any idea of what's going on there? Boy, I don't know that we do. You know, um, Mike Sorensen and Mike Anderson, those guys have studied redheads and cans quite a bit. Mike did his, uh, Mike Sorensen did his PhD on them. Um, Mike came up with a really nice model. And I, and I think you could maybe apply this to, to different species. And the, the idea is without parasitic laying, a female only has two choices. You either nest or you don't. That's it. It's a binary decision. You either are all in or you're all out. And so that, that really, you know, when you think about waterfowl, I mean, they, they have evolved to live in very seasonal, very unpredictable environments. That's what makes them ducks, um, you know, and, and they're able to very quickly adapt to changing water conditions, you know, pond conditions, et cetera, et cetera. So, so having a flexible reproductive strategy is a pretty good thing as a duck. Uh, and that, that pretty much characterizes the whole group. Mike's original model was the idea that what parasitism does is it now interjects two other possibilities. So if, if you're below a certain threshold where either you can't or it would not pay, and by pain I mean sort of in a, in a reproductive you know, success sense, an evolutionary fitness sense, if you want to use some jargon, um, it wouldn't pay to nest. Maybe it would cost too much, you'd risk mortality, your chances of survival and future reproduction are down. By laying parasitically, you still acquire some success at a lower cost. So it now gives you more. It's like an investment portfolio. It now gives you another investment option at a lower risk, but also a lower payback. On the other side, so Mike sort of envisioned this continuum. On the other side, for females, you know, the wealthy females, if you will, the ones with lots of energy to burn, a big bank account of, of lipids and proteins that they can put into eggs, um, maybe I don't have time in the season to actually pull off two complete broods, uh, or it might not even pay off to, you know, by the time I lay a clutch of eggs, you know, 10 to 15 days, incubate them for 20 to 30 days, 
you know, we're, we're 40, 50 days into the season. I mean, there's no way you can, you know, some species, I mean, some do renest, of course, but, but pull off two complete clutches as well as raise the kids just can't do that. So, so, but what if I could make 40 eggs or 30 eggs? Well, why not lay one clutch in somebody else's nest and then just right away begin to lay eggs in my own nest? I'm effectively double clutching. I'm, so I'm getting this, this fecundity enhancement without paying the cost of incubation, without the time costs of caring for the kids, et cetera. So, so Mike sort of had this, this idea. So he, uh, getting back to your question, he proposed this for both canvasbacks and redheads. And, and redheads, he suggested, those thresholds were just different for redheads. So the threshold by which they became parasitic was just lower. So the, the trade-off into switching into pure nesting mode um, was, was effectively, I guess, sort of higher for, or higher, or the payoff for parasitism was higher for redheads than it was for canvasbacks. So that, that may be, that may be one part of it. There's, you know, there's some body size, but there's just so much, Mike, as you know, there's just so much variation in, in reproductive strategies and life histories, even amongst closely related species in the same habitat. That's what makes waterfowl so, so interesting. And I, and I'll make, sorry, here we go. You asked an academic no. to, to talk. I'm talking. <laughs> I'm a hardcore duck person. I really, I strongly believe in, in, you know, what we do has to have. Uh, management implications. So I, I don't want to just be an airy fairy sort of egghead who drifts off into the the stratosphere of you know sort of deep thought with no application. But having said that, one of the things that's always got under my skin is I think waterfowl are an incredible group. You know they're they're a single you know monophyletic in the sense that they 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 come from a common evolutionary origin. They've adapted into so many roles, life histories, feeding, etc. When I teach my waterfowl class, it's just like. Darwin's finch has got nothing on waterfowl. I mean, when you look at the adaptive <laughs> radiation. And yet they never are given credit, really. You know, the, the hardcore academics, the birders, when I say I study waterfowl and some of the things I do deal with behavioral ecology or evolutionary ecology, they look down their nose and they go, why are you studying ducks? You know, why aren't you studying, so you know, song sparrows or, you know, uh, and it's just, and it's, and it's really irritating um, because there's just so much diversity and I think so. I think waterfowl is just a great model system, even if you have no interest in management, just from understanding um, the evolution of life histories. And, and there are some characteristics of waterfowl that make them much easier to study these questions in. Some of oh, which relates to, to the wood ducks, cavity nesting ducks, and mm -hmm. uh, just mm -hmm. the, they're easier to easier to see, easier to find the nest of, and just study all those important aspects of their of their life history. I want to go back a little bit here, John. Uh, again, taking advantage of the fact that I have a theoretical ecologist on on the on this episode here. Much of what you talked about when trying to explain quote, why this strategy would have evolved and under which circumstances it might be useful. It, it kind of evokes of this, and we hear this a lot of times when we're trying to explain behaviors or, uh, or you know, physiological traits or whatever the case may be in animals. We talk about them as though – as though maybe they're making an active decision in response to some assessment of the environment. And so you've thought about this probably every day for the last 30 years or longer in terms of, of animals perceiving, assessing the environment or some condition that they're finding themselves in and then, quote, making a decision in response to that. Is that, is that kind of way of thinking about it a bit too – anthropomorphic uh, do do we think birds ducks in this case whether we're talking about 
their ability to perceive and assess a threat from a hunter on the landscape or the reproductive decisions, quote, decisions that they would be making with respect to nest parasitism. Do we think they're able to do that? Or is this just some sort of innate response to some stimuli that they can, that, that's, uh, that they're faced? Well, the simple answer is yes. <laughs> I mean, it's just, <laughs> of course, ask, ask an academic, I'm going to give you a fuzzy answer. I mean, it's both. I, you know, I, I think, I mean, when we say they're making decisions, you know, they're not doing calculus in their heads. And, and that was always one of the big things, like animals can't do that fitness calculation. How are they making those kind of decisions? And so, and so evolutionary ecologists often sort of couch that answer by saying, oh, well, they're not really making the decision. Natural selection is making the decision. So they have... They have a suite of alternative uh, genotype, phenotype, physiological traits, and those that allow them to respond in a certain way under a certain condition will be selected for. I mean, that's the long-winded sort of boring academic answer. So, so you know, evolution, if you will, is making the decision. That's the answer, or that's the sort of the argument there. And there's truth to that. I mean, I think, you know, animals that are exposed constantly to sets of, of constraints or opportunities uh, if there is variation, if there's heritable variation among them uh, that allow them to respond differently, those that succeed, those traits will tend to predominate versus other ones that uh, that are not as successful. So that's just just really sort of basic evolutionary theory. But but when we come down to animals making decisions, I I sort of gone the other way. We I was taught as an undergrad to think of them as automatons, right? You know, don't be anthropomorphic. Uh, don't don't try to think that these animals are are thinking ahead, and don't ever use the word sad or happy. I mean, I'm not into yeah. using the word sad or happy, but, 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 <laughs> you know, they're just dumb, dumb little robots that can't think. And I, I reject that idea. I mean, I think, you know, I think there are decisions the same way as we make decisions, the same way as your dog. Do you think your dog does calculus? But, but it sure as heck knows how to find that treat that you've hidden, you know, sort of under the couch or, or, or sure knows, you know, your hand signals when you're out in the marsh. It's making a decision, you know, so it's using a series of cues is responding to those cues in a certain way, and different animals have different strengths. There, there's a whole field now. I mean, it almost seems a little bit wacko. Some of your listeners may think, okay, I'm turning off this podcast, this guy, so I'm smoking <laughs> smart weed or, or, or water grass. Or well, you are know. joining us from California, so. <laughs> there we go, yeah. La, la, la. Welcome to the, welcome to the left coast. Um, yeah, that, uh, you know, th that there's this whole field now of animal personalities. I mean, it's, re it's, it's really insane. And, and, and we've even been doing, I confess, a little bit of that in wood ducks. I mean, you see that with your dogs, right? I mean, every dog has its own personality. And you see that any of us who've worked with birds. I mean, like there are hens, for example, wood duck hens. You have to sneak up on them. I swear to God, you got to park the truck half a mile away and, you know, sneak up on them to go and band them. There's other hens you go and give them a back rub and, you know, they don't care. Yep. And so... And that's consistent. So, so we know that there's those those variation among individuals. Whether you know whether it's heritable, we don't know. What the physiological underpinnings are, their their you know sort of response to threats or stress, we don't know. But so I think I think yes, they do make decisions, not in the way that we think in terms of an accountant, you know, or an investment bank, uh, broker, but but certainly in the way of hmm, um, this looks like a good thing to do, or uh, I don't feel comfortable here. I'm not doing this. So, um, so, so my, my flippant answer, yes, was yeah, it's both, you know, sort of the hardcore hardwired responses to some extent, but there's a lot of flexibility and waterfowl, I think are amazing because we just see, as you said, they're easy to study. We've got oodles and oodles of data because we've been interested in them for a long period of time. The best studied 
wildlife population in in the world, I would think, would be waterfowl, uh, species of waterfowl. So there's just there's there's lots of opportunity there. I appreciate you indulging me on that little detour, but I knew that you would have a very thoughtful answer, and it's, it's something that I that I I'm used about occasionally. And and we'll, it, it we'll doesn't... see if this, we'll see if this makes the editor's cut. Oh, I'm sure it will. Uh, and, and it's it's related to what we're going to talk about in the next episode, where you're able to study a lot of the individual individual wood ducks, and we're seeing that now across waterfowl in the in the studies that are being conducted, where we're marking individuals and learning how they each do certain things, and it's speaks to this idea of individual difference, individuality, yeah. whether it be yeah, pers- yep. quote, personalities or behaviors or reproductive or heterogeneity. And how it yeah. varies. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. And and it didn't take – that was one of the first things that I probably realized or picked up on as a young grad student when I had my hands on ducks, so physically had my hands on ducks, or whether it be a male mallard or a female mallard, is that they're different. They're, they differ, uh-huh. as you described. They're different in how they respond to you. Some will will almost draw blood from your fingers trying to get away from you. Others will just uh-huh. sit there and, and allow you to hold them and not not move a muscle. And so there are these inherent differences uh, that are very easy to, to pick up. And so, yeah, I appreciate you uh, sharing your thoughts there. And it does provide a good segue for us to, to talk about, sort of tease this next episode where you, uh, in your effort to – help answer some of these questions about nest parasitism in waterfowl. And you have taken advantage of a population of wood ducks in the California Central Valley and have a long-term study where you have individually marked birds using some very innovative technology, which we will talk about on the next episode. And you have been able to track the nesting behaviors, these nest parasitism behaviors of these individuals for a number of years. And you've actually been able to do some uh, some genetic marking of figure out the genetic mm-hmm. markers of these individuals. So it's a very fascinating study, species and environment, and that's going to be the focus of our of our next episode. And uh, yeah, it's going to shed additional light on many of these questions of why why it might happen and what birds are doing, what different things, and also you uncovered some things that just blew your mind in terms of what mm-hmm. these wood ducks were doing. Yeah, I remember yeah. seeing a presentation at the duck symposium last year and I was, I was, I was amazed at what you learned. So sure. Can I, Mike, can I just before uh, finish off on one thing? Cause you raised this issue of individual heterogeneity. And I think that's really interesting. I, I also want to bring it back to the management aspect. I always want to come back to that. Like, so what, why is this interesting? And Mickey Heitmeyer, you know, has had some papers out a while ago. This idea of variation among individuals and populations. So as we manage populations, we often manage them as sort of the average, right? But that's not the case. There are producers out there and there are losers out there. And, and I think, you know, we need to be thinking, I mean, this even comes back to our ideas about compensatory hunting mortality. How can that be? You know, how, how can you shoot a duck and get one back? You know, and I tell my students that and they just don't get it. Well, there's some good math behind it that you can explain it. But part of it is individual heterogeneity. I mean, we know, for example, that birds in poor condition are more likely to come into decoys than some species. So that's individual heterogeneity. Um, we know that there are some females that are super fecund and super producers. And so as we think about managing populations, we need to move beyond just thinking about them as being average automatons. And thinking about that variation among individuals and how our management affects or could actually effect a positive change by recognizing, understanding, and creating conditions that that maximize the success of, of 
uh, the individuals that are that are you know sort of highly productive or most likely to survive and and uh, produce. So just want to bring that up. I think individual heterogeneity is a is a key issue just to be thinking about from waterfowl management as a whole. I see what you're doing there, John. You're creating a runway for us to have you back on to talk about some of your other work related to individual based modeling, and that's <laughs> so very crafty on your part. And and you know that's another fascinating topic there, the intersection of that that science and and technology and how we actually can do that. But no, in all seriousness, some of the other work that you're doing with individual based modeling, where you can represent that beyond just the averages, you can account for all that individual variation when you're modeling a population. That in itself is a fascinating topic. Thank you so much, John. We're going to wrap it up here, and we will ask people to join us on the next episode. Thanks for joining us, John. Yeah, thanks so much, and thanks, folks, for listening. Uh, it's a it's a, a crazy, curious uh, little system, and, and uh, you know what you don't see sometimes can surprise you. So thanks so much. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. John Eady with the University of California, Davis. We appreciate him sharing his insights into this very peculiar phenomenon of avian nest parasitism. He's one of the leading experts in this field, and so we're very fortunate to have him join us. We also thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work that he does editing these podcasts and making us sound way better than we are. We always appreciate the great work that he does. And of course, most importantly, you, the listeners, we thank you for joining us and we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.